Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm talking with Susan Piver. Susan is a Buddhist practitioner and the New York Times best-selling author of eight books, including The Hard Questions, The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, the award-winning How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life, and her latest book entitled Start Here Now, An Open-Hearted Guide to the Path and Practice of Meditation. She's been interviewed on Oprah Winfrey, uh, by Oprah, Katie Couric, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and absolutely loads, loads of other places. And uh, in 2011, Susan launched the Open Heart Project, which is an online meditation community with nearly 12,000 members, I believe, who practice together and explore ways to bring spirituality uh, and values such as kindness, genuineness, and fearlessness into their everyday life. So, Susan, thank you so, so, so much for talking to me today. This is so exciting. My pleasure. I'm so happy to talk to you, too. You've been studying Buddhism, I think, back from since 1995. Um, and then in 2004, you graduated from a Buddhist seminary. What, what, was, what was that experience like? What, what did that involve? That was the best experience ever. I am so happy I did that. And it was took three months, uh, basically of retreat in the Rocky Mountains in uh, Colorado, and studying uh, the three yanas of Buddhism, the three cycles of teachings that the Buddha that the Buddha gave, the Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, and there was an in-depth study of the core teachings of Buddhism, a lengthy periods of meditation practice, and uh, at the end there was a, a test, <laughs> and. But it's not done. It's not like done in any kind of Western way. It's a very interesting way of testing what you learned, and the the testing in the Buddhist sense is not can you repeat back to me what I said. It's more along the lines of can you tell me what this means to you? Have you internalized it and made it personal? And at the end, I was declared a graduate. So it was wonderful. I like that. Rather than these sort of the traditional, learn as many facts as possible and regurgitate dates from like you know, it's actually. Okay, so it's not necessarily this is right or wrong. It's about how you've processed it, how you've, you know, in turn, I like that. What, what, what would you say was like the biggest sort of um, learning or experience that kind of taught you that whole thing? Oh my, that's a good question. Were you, were I you, learned... Were you already quite, were you already quite, I mean, you said you've been studying it since 1995. So did you already... You knew a lot about it, obviously, already, but was, then, was that just building on it or was it a complete like paradigm shift, some of the things you learned? It was both. It was both. And I, I had been practicing since 1995, but I had not been studying. Okay. So I had just been basically practicing by myself in my house for like nine years. And I didn't really join any community. I didn't really go to programs. I just practiced. So when I got this giant hit of study, of teachings, of dharma, it was, it was startling and mind-blowing to me. And I'd say the main takeaway... It, that I had is that the supreme power of discipline, which doesn't mean you know beating yourself up to do things you'd rather not do, but of having a flow of routine and simply returning to the same starting point every day, which is the essence of discipline, as opposed to strong-arming yourself, just coming back, coming back over and over. I learned the power and simplicity of that 
And of course, it's very easy to do when you're in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and not so easy to do when you're at home with your whatever kids in school and whatever. But still, just re- repetition. The uh, great trans, the great psychiatrist, psychologist, humanist teacher who nobody's ever heard of named Claudio Naranjo, who is also a primary teacher of the Enneagram, which I'm fixated on, said at one point, spontaneous innovation, he was talking about music, is only possible through repetition. So in other words, you have to repeat, repeat, repeat something you're playing, and then at some point you can innovate, and it's fresh and genuine. And it's the same thing with your mind. With repetition, the practice of meditation, breath, 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 suddenly insight arises. So I really learned, I'm making this a long answer, but I really learned the profound connection between repetition and insight, and it was very useful to me. It's interesting when you're saying there just about um, that sort of innovation, because somebody said um, uh, a while ago in a previous interview about the, um, the importance of like, if you want to suddenly, you know, do a sunny, um, a freestyle in, in music, then you've got to like have that basis grounding in, you know, the discipline of like learning your scales. And then once you've got that, then suddenly this creativity can come out of that repetition, like, you know, by, by doing the basics again and again and again, and then from out of that, the flow. So I mean, it just made me think of that, Sunny. Yeah, it's it's totally saying the same thing. And there, there's something about the repetition of playing something you know, but you, your mind kind of relaxes. And that is the uh, prerequisite for insight and innovation and ideas, is that kind of relaxation of your mind. I think it's why so many great ideas occur to the wonderful thinkers while they're in the shower or taking a walk or sleeping, because your mind is in this state of relaxation, something fresh can enter. But usually in our culture, Western culture, we want to go right for the new idea, the innovation, the, the special thing that no one's ever thought of. But what we don't realize is that some kind of spaciousness is required for that to happen. Mm. And one thing I found interesting when you looking at like, your books and your articles, I mean, like f- from the outset, just looking at you know, New York Times bestselling author, um, you know, meditation expert, it's quite easy to I don't necessarily assume that, okay, life sorted i've got it you know like got it all good but what i quite like is that you are you're very honest and open about the fact that you know you've struggled with depression you know your entire life since you were a child and i know it was kind of about it's not necessarily always about being happy 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 100 percent of the time but it seems like it's more about learning to have those tools to actually deal with life's challenges and to be like hey you're going to have up and bad days it's not always going to be 100 percent. but having those sort of tools in place to then be able to ride out the way was that was that kind of correct it's awesome And it's so great that you said that because so many spiritual teachings are about how to bypass the difficulties of life Mm. and just reach some kind of, you know, blissed out state where nothing affects you, nothing hurts you, and you're in some sort of bliss state. And, you know, my understanding is that we, you and I, are here to be human, not to be godlike and transcend the human experience but to be in the human experience so what i notice about the really great practitioners of spirituality is how genuine they are how down to earth how funny how much they laugh if you go hear a talk by the dalai lama he's not telling you this is how you can be perfect he is telling you to be kind to other people and making a lot of jokes while he's doing it and you know the greater the teacher the more normal and approachable and genuine. I keep that word just 
strike me over and over again. They are. Yeah, no, I love that. And me too. Well, well, one one bit of advice I know because when when I read this, I kind of was like, "What?" It, it seems almost quite offensive. I know that you found it quite offensive at first, but then you actually learn about it. You got some great advice from a Tibetan meditation master, I think, when you were actually dealing with you know tough stuff, and it was. You could always just cheer up. What, 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 what does that mean? Why? Because I know that, you know, that from the surface, it's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going through a terrible time. Don't tell me to cheer up. That's, you know, it's, it's, it seems, what, what the hell? But what, 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 why is that so powerful? I know. I'm so happy you mentioned that too. Yeah, this great Tibetan meditation master named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche said I'm to I'm glad you mentioned it. I didn't know his name, but I didn't even dare pronounce it because I was like, oh, I'm going to struggle. So I left it to you. <laughs> no worries. Good thinking. Well done. Um, in giving a talk about depression said, well, you could always just cheer up, just like you say. And and yeah, it's like, what are you talking about? My problems are heavy and complex and and important. And cheer up is like kind of like get over it or just you know, why don't you just smile? It just seems so superficial. Mm. But when I investigated it, and if you investigate it, which I hope you will, it doesn't mean, oh, just blow it off and just be happy. It means cut. You can always just, you're in this state of deep moroseness. I don't know if that's a word. This heavy cloud, this darkness, and it is complex and it is real. But at the same time, if you try you can always just kind of let go of it and it may only last for a moment but you can if you say to yourself well i could always just cheer up you know for a moment i'm looking over my computer there's beautiful trees there's a garden the sky is blue it's a sunny day in a moment i can just (gasps) cheer up and then maybe i'll feel sad and bad and heavy again but this sort of uh, instruction to cut was profound when I saw that I could actually do it. I'm not under the, I'm not enslaved by anything. Yeah, and so, yeah, it's interesting. And I, when you said that, you're like, and then, you know, sure, you might feel, you know, moments later, might, you know, feel that heaviness again. But if if you can feel it even in that moment, then I guess it shows that you can almost control it. You, you, you're not, you're not, um, you're not almost the victim to it. You can make that decision in that moment to actually, yeah. And, and in Buddhist thought, the idea behind that is there is always a quality of what in my lineage we call basic goodness, which doesn't mean that everything is good, you know, and there is no badness because we see tons of badness every single day. It's so devastating. But at the same time, if you dig underneath all the depressions and aggression and in yourself, you find this sort of ground of spaciousness and decency and tenderness that never goes away so and you can always reattune to that sometimes it's by looking at nature you see something fresh but the reason the way i explain to myself yeah we're all born basically good and when you look at the world you see how people are chopping other people's heads off and setting them on fire or killing animals is not good nonetheless even those people were babies and when babies are born as far as i've seen they're not born like this really <laughs> screw you <laughs> they're born like this just with the sense of i'm i'm reaching and i expect to be embraced no baby is ever born you know giving the finger or 
<laughs> There's this sense of tenderness and of expecting to be embraced. And we're all born that way. No one, as far as I know, is not born that way. Maybe babies have illnesses, but generally speaking, we're born with this great tenderness and expecting love. Mm. And uh, yeah, that word love, I mean, t- t- ties me on to uh, this area I'd like to explore about breakups and stuff like that, because I know, you know, you've, I mentioned it in the intro, like, you know, you, you wrote a book about this, but um, dealing with breakup, you talk about sort of, well, from, from the beginning, like, you know, if we, if you deal with it, you know, you're, you're completely heartbroken, you immediately feel like these kind of qualities and attributes of, you know, shame, moodiness, obsessive thinking, like, what, what are these kind of things, you know, because you start, you know, I'll let, let you explain. Okay. Um, yeah, the heartbreak from lost love is different than other kinds of heartbreak mm-hmm. in certain ways. I mean, you can get your heart broken, you lose your job, someone you love dies, you found out you're ill, anything, many things can break your heart. But when it comes from lost love, there are qualities connected to it that don't seem to be as connected to the other forms. And just as you mentioned, the first one is shame, just this profound sense of unworthiness. And if only I hadn't said this or... I'll never find love or I have these deep flaws and some sense of just really, really humiliated and this devastating kind of sense of unworthiness. I'll just say again, that doesn't seem to go with other kinds of heartbreak as much. And the second quality is something I call insane, obsessive thinking, which is, why did I say this? If only I hadn't said that. I'll never find love because I have these deep problems. I have to read this book. I, I'm an asshole. No, that person is an ass. No, this, you know, if, if I had been taller or shorter, or, and it, it goes on all day and all night sometimes, and it's exhausting. <laughs> it, it's exhausting. It's like your own mind just attacks you. It's, it's terrible. And then the third quality that goes along with it is a kind of doubt, doubt in love itself, and doubt that you will ever, ever experience it again, even though it would be terrifying also to experience it. And so I find that Buddhist practice is really helpful in those things. And most books about heartbreak sort of run along two lines. The first is, you know, and I, most of them are aimed at women. So the first kind is, you go, girl, you know, kind of like, just go out, cocktails, party blow that person off. He, he or she wasn't good enough for you anyway. Just, okay, that's not bad. You know, you could remember to have fun. And that's, those books are not harmful. They're not helpful. But they're not harmful. But the second kind of book is, there's something wrong with you. And you attracted this and made it happen. And until you fix that, this is just going to happen over and over again. And I just think that that is BS. I don't think that's true. And it makes you feel very claustrophobic and like, uh oh, it's my fault. Not helpful. It's not your fault. It's, we all get our hearts broken. But the, my book, Wisdom of a Broken Heart, which is meant to apply Buddhist thinking to it, says, yeah, you could have fun. And yeah, maybe there's something wrong with you. You need to investigate. But in addition to those things, you could feel this profound opening that comes with heartbreak. Because my definition of it is a heartbreak is love unattached from an object. 
and you see how profound your capacity is for love, how much it burns, how much it... And you learn that there is nothing more important than love. And you don't learn that until your heart is broken. And, and that is true. So it, it re- reorients your priorities and it teaches you how to love, how to stabilize your heart in this state of profound openness. If you try. <laughs> yeah, no, I found, it, I found it really interesting, that idea of, um, I mean, like you said, like on those, those examples, it's kind of almost, um, you know, there's the pain, there's the sorrow, and then all that, you know, you get the advice from like really well-wishing family and friends who want the best for you, but it's kind of like saying, there's the pain, let's help you get away from the pain, when actually exactly. you could look at it from a different approach, saying actually the key is to sort of stop running and actually turn away and just look directly at your sorrow, and then by acknowledging and embracing it, it immediately has um, just, it just pacifies it. It just, you know, it just immediately takes a lot of that sting out of the tail, doesn't it? By actually just confronting it head on. Yeah, and I would say confronting it is one word, but feeling it is another word. Yeah, by confronting, it implies allowing... that confronting almost implies aggression. So yeah, you're right, just to let yeah. it be. But, and, but I think I, I totally see that you mean approach it, go yeah. toward it stop going away from it and yeah and then feel it when you feel it that starts a kind of process of metabol metabolization you're not quite sure how long it's going to take or where it's going exactly but it becomes a kind of fodder and it's there anyway and everything you do to ignore it just sort of calcifies it but when you start to feel it it sort of softens and fills you and lets you process it and also you learn, you know, most books about heartbreak are about how to close your heart back up and find, go back to normal. But Buddhist advice, if I can call it that, is about op- noticing how open your heart is and then stabilizing it in that state of openness, which is also the state of loving kindness and creativity and sensitivity and yeah, it's a ride. It's a rough ride to live with a heart like that. But it's also the ride of art and love and genius and connection. Mm. So, Absolutely. Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I think you got, it, was, um, it was a wonderful, um, uh, I mean, it's in the book, but it's a wonderful um, Huffington Post article, which um, I'll link to. Um, in um in the show notes but yeah you're like those kind of three kind of main things to sort of develop a relationship with pain i love that i love that the, the phrase like relationship with pain almost making it your friend um yeah and it's that you know one like meditation sort of allowing ourselves to be with the pain you know allowing yourself to be rather than trying to fix it fix it but then also seeing it as wisdom what, what was like viewing your sorrow as wisdom exactly all about that's a very good question well, there's a number of ways to answer that. And I guess I'll just say, and I know I already said this, but when your heart is open like this, when you, f- you feel everything, mm. not just your own pain, but everyone's. You look at someone else who's suffering and you cry. You look at someone who's happy and your heart sort of, you know, opens and you see people on TV and you're like, ah, I get exactly what they're going through. So you're feeling everything. And this, when you can feel everything and you know 
that love is the most important thing in the world and nothing even comes close, then in Buddhist thought, that is what is called being a bodhisattva or an awakened being because you are now capable of a kind of profound compassion because you are seeing clearly. Your projections are destroyed. With ideas that you had about your life and who you are and what's going on, they're gone. So this big space opens up and you're feeling and you're knowing what's important. So your ability to be kind to others and to understand what they're experiencing, which is the wisdom piece, is at an unprecedented high. So, you know, the truth is all our hearts are broken. And life is very difficult and very wonderful. And most of us skate on the side of it because we're too afraid to just jump into that chaos. Mm. But when your heart is broken, you are placed in the chaos, whether you want it to be or not. So you have a chance to stabilize and look around and then proceed with the rest of your life in a deeper and more meaningful way. I hope that answers your no, question. No, no, amazingly. Yeah, I know it's really interesting because um, I, I, to- I, totally, I totally know what you, what you mean because, um, yeah, like, not, not really recently, but, like, yeah, or, or, like, you know, a while ago, um, went, through, yeah, went through a heartbreak, you know, completely, like, absolutely devastated, but learnt more in those preceding months than, you know, as in, it was, like, as, as terrible and awful and, you know, upset I was, like, you, you, like you said, you kind of see... You kind of, you know, a lot of the layers of like what you kind of think is important, like you know what you, um, you know, a lot of those layers are just stripped back, and actually, the really like, simple things are just like you're saying. You, you feel those emotions, and it was quite um, a, an amazing experience. You know, looking back you know, at the time, I you know would, never would have wished that ever again. But looking back with hindsight, it's like wow, yeah, you did actually learn more about yourself, more about your outlook on life, more about what's really truly important in those terrible times than, you know, you do before. So I can kind of, you know, when you said that, it completely was like, yeah, yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm, I'm sorry it happened, and I'm glad hmm. it happened in the sense that you got became richer internally from it, and I'm happy that you're through the worst because I would you would never wish it on anyone. It's It's horrible. It's like everyone else is like, what? How can you be a normal human being? How can you eat? How can you talk? How can you laugh? It's, it's, but then you come back to us, but you come back enriched. So thank you for coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I think you, you said like somewhere it was like 99.9% of most of the self-help books out there are all about like, how can I get more love? How can I find love? How can I attract love? But one of the things you suggest is actually like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's cool. That's, you know, that's, that's excellent. Sure. But actually, shift that focus more on how do I give love? How do I become more loving? And that sort of transforms everything. How, how so? Yeah, I am so happy you said that. Yeah, if you look at the books, just like you say, almost all of them, or all of them as far as I can see, are about how to get love, or how to repair broken love, or how to attract love, as you say. And there are no books about how to give love, which is so funny. Uh, because that is the secret antidote to heartbreak, is to pull your attention away, even just a little bit from how am I ever going to get love again, to how can I give love. And in every situation that you will find yourself in, there is a way for you to give love. And it doesn't mean being nice and sweet and take, giving someone the shirt off your back necessarily. It just means paying attention. 
and taking your focus off yourself and putting it on them and seeing, well, what is happening with this person? And is there something I can do to help? If so, let me see if I can do that. If not, cool, okay, there isn't, but I can still listen and so on. So taking that shift, making that little shift, which is a huge shift at the same time, from how am I going to get someone to love me to how am I going to be able to give love? It uh, suddenly your life is full of love. It I don't mean to sound Pollyannish or <laughs> whatever, but it's it's true. It's true, and it's also there when it comes to love and a heartbreak where you feel so disempowered, you feel completely powerless. It's horrible, hmm. but when it comes to love, there is only one seat of power, and that is as a lover. And when you take that seat, you also take the seat of power, not control or then you can get whatever you want, but there's a sense of being powerful. And when you're waiting for love or longing for love, which we all do, there's nothing wrong with that, there's a sense of powerlessness, but you can shift that. Mm. And how, knowing that sort of, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword, because you, know, you want to love, but then knowing that, all uh, love is going to end in heartbreak. You say people change, relationships crater. Like, this sounds morbid, but someone's going to die. Why is it actually, you can flip that the other way around. Why, is it, why do you kind of find it empowering to actually recognize these truths that, hey, this is going to end yeah. in a bad way somewhere, somewhere yeah, yeah. someone's going to die. Why is it actually quite empowering to recognize that truth? Yeah, well, all relationships will end in heartbreak. Yeah. Just like you say, someone's going to leave, someone's going to change their mind. Someone's going to fall in love with someone else. And the best case scenario is someone's going to die. <laughs> You're going to have a happy, wonderful relationship, and then one of you will die. And that's the most heartbreaking of all. So there's no way around heartbreak. Hmm. The happier your relationship, in some ways, the more heartbreaking it is. And my belief is that most, many relationships end because confronting the heartbreak of happiness is too painful. It is too painful. It is just so supremely painful to look at the one you love. I've been married for 17 years. And yes, I, I don't know what, I love my husband and I hate him and we have a great relationship and we get in lots of fights. And, but we're in. And, you know, sometimes when I'm feeling, we're feeling most loving towards each other, immediately the thought of, oh, someday we will separate comes. And rather than making me feel cold or scared, which it does make me feel scared, but it makes me love him even more because I feel the preciousness and the uh, impermanence of the situation. So it makes me appreciate. It's, it, it tones everything down to a very simple level. And you say, oh, this person is only with me for a time. And so let me kind of not be so irritated by the way he does the laundry or whatever stupid thing. And instead, you know, just appreciate, appreciate this great good fortune. So, you know, there's wisdom in that. Yeah, I love that quote you posted saying by Saul Bellow. Um, talking about like death or things ending, saying um, it's the black backing on the mirror that allows us to see anything at all, um, which was just like I was just like yeah, that I mean is amazing. You know, it's, it's so simple, but yeah, it's totally true. It's totally true, and yes, I, I, let me just say that quote again, which you said perfectly, but it's so valuable 
death is the, like the black backing on the mirror that allows us to see anything at all. So without the acknowledgement of impermanence, we're in a dream. Yeah. And though it's super painful to acknowledge it, that's why the spiritual path is called the path of warriorship. It takes a lot of courage. And we all forget, oh yeah, this, you know, think things are going to last forever. I think that all the time. But the more you can remember that things are impermanent, the more rich your life will be, even though it sounds like crazy, but I think that's true. And then what, you're just left with that one question, like are you willing to proceed even though you know it's not safe or you're not? And so, you know, and it's simple, like either yes or, or, no, or no, I guess. Exactly, and either answer is fine. Yeah. It's just, you know, what kind of life do you want? Do you want one filled with love and confusion and, and richness and creativity and happiness and sadness? Or do you want one that's just sort of bland? Mm. I think those are the two choices. Maybe there's others, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mentioned at the beginning that you run this amazing like, online community of 12,000 people, you know, all like learning and meditating together. Like, what, what kind of, I don't know, as in a lot of the people often say, you know, they learn you know, when they're writing or they, you know, got, they've got blogs and they're often learning just as much from the people as you know, they're putting out there. It's, you know, it's kind of a two-way thing. Like, what, what has that experience been like? I mean, I think it's been running for four years now, has it? How, I mean, what, that's, has it been incredible? Like, what have you kind of like learned what, from that whole thing? Oh, it's been amazing. Yeah, it's, it's once a week, I send out a free guided meditation instructional video to anyone who wants it. And it's preceded by a little talk on something related to practice. So the 10 minute sit, maybe a five minute talk or an eight minute talk, something like that. And I also, uh, so I've given meditation instruction now thousands of times. And I teach online classes, and there's a core group, a, a subscriber group now, because people want to learn more than just 10 minutes a week. And uh, we even had our first refuge vow ceremony last month in July, which was when you, that's the ceremony by which you formally become a Buddhist. And a senior teacher who I know came in and gave the refuge vow, which is, again, when you become a Buddhist online. As far as I know, it's the first time that has ever happened in the history of 2,600 year history of Buddhism. And it was amazing. And so the two things I've learned, one is that teaching the Dharma online or doing a podcast just like you're doing is an intimate experience for you, for me, and for whoever's watching. Because for whoever's watching, they just see you. And so it feels very one-on-one. So I, I thought maybe teaching the Dharma online would be a light version of teaching in person, but it is not. It is just as rich, and in some ways it is even richer, because it has the feeling of one-to-one. It's, this is our distance from each other, rather than seeing a teacher on a stage. So I've been amazed over and over again at how personal and wonderful the online teaching environment is. And the other thing I've learned is that, and this includes myself, is how hard we are on ourselves. And that no matter how many times I say, hey, I'm sending you this 10-minute meditation video once a week for free, if you have time, do it. If you don't, you delete it. People feel oppressed so easily by, oh, I should do this. I didn't do it. I'm a bad person. Uh-oh, I'm screwing up. The depth of self-aggression and 
you know, that we experience toward ourselves has been a shocking revelation. I mean, I knew I did, but I didn't know everyone else also does it. So it's hard to be kind to yourself is one of the main things I've learned. And I know that meditation softens you, but uh, it's been quite stunning to see how difficult we all the difficulties that we place ourselves in by being so mean to ourselves. Mm. And, it's interesting. and I guess by recognizing it, then that it's not, you know, oh, you just thought, okay, it's only me who talks to myself like that. By realizing maybe that everyone does, I don't know, what, what, I'm trying to work out what, what the power of that is, but I guess you may be kinder to yourself by realizing that we, we've all kind of got our baggage, our crap going on, but... I don't know, I'm, I'm not really sure what the, the, the point is of that, but I guess it's quite just illuminating actually realising, hey, like everyone's kind of got this sort of self-talk, like negativity about themselves, which maybe we've got to just be a bit more kinder, empathetic towards ourselves. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we, well, it's, it's useful just to see. We, we've been raised in a culture that tells us that we're supposed to be perfect mm. and that our lives are supposed to be perfect and that if the, we, it isn't perfect, there's something really wrong with us. And nothing's ever good enough. And it's helpful to see that. And the practice of meditation is the antidote. Because in the practice, and I've written about this in my book, new book, Start Here Now, which sort of encapsulates everything I teach about meditation uh, to the Open Heart Project, the online community. Meditation is the practice of seeing your thoughts, letting go, and coming back to the gentleness of your breath. So it cultivates a kind of relief from that incessant haranguing that we do to ourselves. It's a, it's a balance. It, it really is the antidote to that self-criticism. And uh, also what is helpful and the wisdom of it, which I so appreciate that that's where your mind went, is what is the wisdom in that, because you can always find it, is if you look just beneath the surface of that perfectionism, and self-doubt, what do you think? I'm not putting you on the spot, but if you look beneath your own, like, ah, oh, you've got to do this better, you've got to be a better person, you have to achieve more, like, what, is, what underlies that? If you look just under the surface of that, what do you think you would see? I'm asking you. Well, say, say you're, you're constantly... Okay, I've got to what well, I've got to achieve more, I've got to do this more. Um you'd probably just see somebody who just wants to feel love, somebody who wants to fit in, somebody who wants to be enough, somebody who just you know, and I guess all these things are kind of justification. I've got to pass those exams, I've got to get straight A's, I've got to get that job, I've got to get that girlfriend, I've got to but actually, yeah, I guess that's deep underneath it, you kind of want to feel love, you want to feel acceptance, you want to, yeah, fulfill. Exactly, mm. exactly. So underneath it all is this kind of longing for love, which is what we talked about already mm. with basic goodness of this, you're born with this longing for love. That's your primary state. That's your essence. And along with that longing is a kind of sadness and tender-heartedness. And feeling the tenderness is potent. Feeling the result of the tenderness, which is, I suck, is not so helpful. But if you can just see that as a kind of masking this 
great tenderness, then it's useful because the tenderness is soft and workable. The aggression is hard and implacable. But the tenderness returns you to a kind of more state of more gentleness and flow that is more powerful than constantly, you know, just haranguing yourself. <laughs> more fruitful. Yeah, much more. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, now we, we end all interviews with a couple of spew round questions. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? You know, a, a life of discipline. I, I, it's very hard for everyone, but a, di- a fulfilled life is one with a discipline of, and a stabilized sense of uh, entering your life awake every day. Amazing. And what is one thing all our listeners, to, all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? Cheer up. <laughs> Great. And are there any books or resources which have changed or had a big impact on your life? Yes. Uh, by the Tibetan meditation master we referenced earlier, Chagyam Trungpa, T-R-U-N-G-P-A, uh, wrote a book called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. It's basically a handbook for how to live in this tender-hearted, open, powerful, fierce way. It's brilliant. Fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. Oh, brilliant. I'll read that myself, 100%. Last oh, but not love least, it. how can people stay in touch? Where can we send them? Find out about your books, your work. Susanpiver.com. Uh, and my new book, Start Here Now, is like a, a handbook for how to meditate and how to learn the lessons of tenderness and openness without turning into a sissy or a ninny. <laughs> and uh, come to my website. Sign up for the Open Heart Project. That's the best way to stay in touch. I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to Susan. Um, just as we were doing the sign-off, uh, the internet decided to crash, uh, and so we lost her, or lost me. But a uh, huge, huge thank you, Susan. It was absolutely just incredible talking to you. And, yeah, can't wait to talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.